So if we look at heart rate variability, it's been kind of proposed that you want more of this sort of physiologic headroom. If you're going to do the NFL combine test and you're going to try to bench 225 for reps and your max bench press is 400, yeah, I'll train you and I could probably get you to a pretty high level on that test. If your max bench press is 245, eh, it's going to be a lot harder, right? You don't have that headroom and strength to really go anywhere, right? So if you have a higher HRV at rest, Right, so a more fine scale variability, which means you are more parasympathetic at rest, you can probably afford to give up, so to speak, some of that in uh, sympathetic type activity. If you don't have much of that at rest, your body's ability to buffer stress is going to be impacted. gentlemen, this is the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. Are you ready to have your mind absolutely blown? So over the last 12 to 18 months, I've really been talking a lot about the autonomic nervous system. People hear that and they go, Ben, what the hell are you talking about? They don't know what that means. They don't understand what it is. They don't understand the implications. And this episode may be your best explanation and your best opportunity to understand what's actually happening. This gentleman actually did his PhD in HRV and the autonomic nervous system. So what is heart rate variability? What is the autonomic nervous system? How do we impact it? And ultimately, what is it doing to us? How is it controlling our life? How is it controlling our ability to lose body fat or conversely gain body fat? How is it impacting our ability to build muscle? These are all of the questions that we're going to answer today with Dr. Mike T. Nelson, one of the smartest guys in the fitness industry that you probably haven't heard of. He's been on the show before. We talked a lot about HRV. We talked a lot about nutrition. One of the coolest things we talked about is the integration of heart rate variability or the autonomic nervous system, because those two things go hand in hand, and its implication on metabolic flexibility. What is metabolic flexibility? My body's ability to use carbohydrates and fat and flip-flop between these two things. And it's so interesting that Mike actually did his PhD on the integration of HRV and metabolic flexibility. So what he suggested in this podcast, well, it's going to blow your mind, but I'm going to tell you anyways, that parasympathetic input is highly correlated with more fat burning, whereas someone who's more sympathetic is even more correlated with fat gain or ultimately using more carbohydrate rest. You're going to want to hear exactly why Mike T. Nelson gives you the details in this episode. I know you're going to love it. Get a paper, get a pen, sit down, and let's knock it out, guys. You're probably going to listen to this one twice and share it with somebody who wants to build a great body. This is going to be your key. I tell you, breathing and meditation is your key to building an amazing body, controlling your mind, losing body fat with ease and simplicity. And we are rolling. Mr. Mike T. Nelson in the house. Oh, hey. Man, you're smart. We, we Thank you, t- sir. <laughs> we've been talking about stuff for an hour, and we didn't record, and I wish we had. Um, but we're sitting here, and, and I really want to pick your brain. So the original intent of having you on the, the show again was to do um, autonomic nervous system stuff. Sure. Because 
you know, you seem like you've got a better understanding of that than most people I've ever encountered. Uh, you did your PhD on it. Could you tell us just a little bit? I know we talked about it a little bit last time, but I'd yeah. like to go a little bit deeper again. Yeah, so how I got into it is I transitioned to exercise physiology because I got tired of doing math. So I did a master's in mechanical engineering. <laughs> I did five years in a PhD program in biomedical engineering. And I was like, oh, I spent all my free time looking at exercise phys. I don't want to do any more math. So I literally dropped out of that program. That fall, I started in the exercise physiology program. My advisor was Did you finish in. your PhD in... Uh, in Oh, in biomedical? No, I literally completed all the classwork except two classes. And I hadn't started research, so that was probably a a good thing. (laughs) So I was right at the point where I really didn't drop out because I'm like, oh, but I'm getting so much closer. And I had a class. We had to take an electrical engineering elective. And the guy walks in. He's like, all right, I'm going to now derive all the equations that are used in MRIs. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I'm sitting in there with like PhDs in electrical engineering and physics. And all of a sudden, he just starts writing stuff on the board. Everyone in class is just feverishly writing everything down. I'm staring at him going, I don't even know what math he's using. And I have a minor in mathematics by this point. And I poke the guy next to him. I'm like, hey, do you know what's going on in here? And he looks <laughs> up. This guy has a PhD in physics. He right. goes, no, and just frantically just starts writing stuff down. Right. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm either going to figure out some way to pass this class and then I'm going to finish my PhD or I think I'm just going to drop out and go to exercise phys. So I dropped out (laughs) (laughs) and then I go over to exercise phys that fall and my advisor the first day walk in, he's like, Hey, we got two new projects. Uh, One's on heart rate variability. One's on metabolic flexibility. And they both involve a lot of math. And I'm sitting at the end of the table and he looks around and you know, normally if you do exercise phys, unless you're doing motor control or biomechanics or some sub-degree of it, you, know, there's, you just don't take a lot of math. It's not really in the prerequisites per se. And he points at me and he's like, hey, you, uh, math boy, whatever your name is. Like, he doesn't even remember my name at this point. He's like, ah, oh, these are your projects. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I, my first thought was, oh, my God, what did I just do? I left another program that I probably can't go back to to do this program because I didn't want to do a lot more math. Uh, but the good part was it was looking at fine-scale variability across physiologic systems. Because HRV and metabolic flexibility are not necessarily connected, especially at that time, 13 years ago. And But if we look at heart rate variability, we can take the average of heart rate, right? So we can get our average resting heart rate. We can get some data during exercise. And that tells us some information that's useful. Heart rate variability, as you guys know, it looks at the fine scale variability between one R wave, right? So the peaky thing on the QRS. Yep. So the depolarization of the ventricle compared to the next one. And those things move just a little bit during rest. And when we do a variability analysis, that next level down of information tells us about the autonomic nervous system. How much is sort of parasympathetic rest and digest? How much is sympathetic more on the stress side of the equation? So that same idea, we then applied to something called the RER. So respiratory exchange ratio. So if you walk in off the street and you're completely fasted, uh, we hook you up to a metabolic cart. You've seen little pictures. They stuff the little tube in your mouth and you're usually on a treadmill exercising. It's looking at basically the air exchange. So by looking at how much oxygen and CO2 is going in and out, we can then say, okay, how much fat and how much carbohydrate are you actually using? 
And what we were looking at is when you're at steady state exercise, you watch the machine and this little RER number kind of moves around a little bit. And if you've done like hundreds of these tests, you get kind of bored. So you're always kind of watching the machine, making sure everything is going okay. And people would say, oh, well, that variation in that number, that's just the machine. That's the algorithm. That's the interpretation of how it works. But when you dig into it further, yeah, there's definitely some of that, right? You're not going to be exactly completely dead nuts on that number all the time. But what it turns out is there's probably a fair amount of physiologic fine scale variability in that number also. And so you're seeing that little bit of variation is probably more on the physiologic side than maybe on the machine side. And if that's true, can we apply the same math, this variability analysis of which there's different ways to do it, that we did on heart rate variability, which has been done for decades at that point, can we take that same math and apply it to the RER number? It's done during steady state exercise, so the number will tell us you know, how much fat versus carbohydrates you're burning, right? just like kind of like an average heart rate. But then that variability analysis, does that tell us about the metabolic system? So we're trying to look to see that more fine scale variability in that number, does that correlate with being more metabolically healthy right? or more metabolic flexibility? And we did some pilot work comparing obese versus non-obese adults, and we did see changes in there that did correlate. You know, it's not a randomized control study, but more of a pilot study to see is there anything there. And then one of the research studies I did for my PhD was a, it's called a gauge R&R, or in our case, a gauge R. If we take people off the street, we do a max test with them, and then we standardize them to 30 or 60% of their max, and then they come back in on three different occasions do we get the same numbers from this analysis we were doing? Uh, no intervention, nothing else. Because if you don't get the same numbers, well, the thing you're trying to measure, you're screwed for starters, right? Because your baseline is all over the place. And what we did show, which was published in JSCR, is that it is stable. So we do know that that measurement, the way we did it, um, it is stable. So the next step, which oddly hasn't, still hasn't been done yet, hopefully will at some point, is if we do some type of intervention or we do some gold standard marker for metabolic flexibility, there isn't really one, but there's ways you can look at it. And does this fine scale variability in that RER, does that actually pan out to be a true marker of metabolic health? And if it does, the end goal was to try to get something like um, Lifetime Fitness or other big gym chains could use to analyze metabolically healthy people and say, oh, yeah, you are really, truly metabolically healthy. We didn't do any blood work. It's a low-intensity test, so we didn't run you to a max. And then other people, yeah, you kind of look the same as this other person on paper, but, ooh, something's going on, right? Your system is getting more metabolically inflexible for whatever reason, and then you can kind of do some intervention or whatever work you want to do with them at that point. So someone who's not metabolically healthy, just showing less of a variance between the RER right. ratios. Yeah, they lose that fine scale variability. So just like on heart rate variability, the more fine scale variability you have, the more parasympathetic tone, the more rest and digest you're under. And then in disease states, right? So there's very good HRV data looking at uh, cardiac mortality. As you start losing that fine scale variability, your risk of cardiac issues goes up. So you had a really good example of uh, that when we were just prior to recording. Can mm -hmm. you walk through that? 
Um, the example of heart rate variability? Or? No, the example of um, when someone starts to lose, the, so the heart is always trying, it needs to be flexible. It needs to have yes. all these different yeah. substrates available to it. Can you just walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, so the new data now is looking at what substrates the heart's actually using. Because you want cardiac tissue always to be contracting. Yes, it goes up dramatically with exercise, but if you think about the heart, it's literally stealing blood flow off of the aorta immediately and rerouting it to the heart. And because the heart is also beating, that blood is kind of going by at a pretty fast rate. So it'd be like if you ran a company and had you know, just-in-time you know, manufacturing, you just barely made the thing off of the th assembly line and somebody already bought it, mm -hmm. right? You are literally supplying energy at the second the heart's actually pulling it off of the blood. And the heart is very, in a healthy state, metabolically flexible. It can pull almost any fuel substrate and use it from triglycerides to ketones to pyruvate to lactate to glucose. You go down the list because it has to be able to use all those fuel uses. If it starts losing that, which we do see in different types of heart failure, dilated cardiac mor mort issues, basically different pathologies, there's a whole sub-list of different classifications which you don't need to get into but you start losing the ability to use fat as a fuel source or sometimes you might start losing the ability to use carbohydrates and we know that in a diseased myocardium the ability to be metabolically flexible is severely impacted now they don't know exactly what causes that per se or necessarily how to get it back they've tried a whole bunch of different drugs and different things like that uh, but we do know that you do lose that and that is a marker for going away from a healthy state. So interventions for, basically what, what I want people to understand here is the um, implications of maintaining this heart rate variability. Because I think most people, yeah. including myself, don't have a massive understanding of what heart variability is or, mm -hmm. the, or the short or long-term implications. And it sounds obviously like as you start to lose this variability, your body, your heart in particular, starts to lose, um, well, your body starts to lose metabolic flexibility, st starts losing the ability to use these different substrates, particularly at the heart level. Um, what are some of the implications short-term uh, as far as performance, as far as uh, stress, as far as ability to use substrates? Just uh, like enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah, so if we look at heart rate variability, it's been kind of proposed that you want more of this sort of physiologic headroom, right? Sure. So if we use a gym analogy, if you're going to do the NFL combine test and you're going to try to bench 225 for reps and your max bench press is 400, yeah, I'll train you and I could probably get you to a pretty high level on that test. If your max bench press is 245, it's going to be a lot harder, right? Sure. You don't have that headroom and strength to really go anywhere, mm -hmm. right? So if you have a higher HRV at rest, right? So a more fine scale variability, which means you are more parasympathetic at rest, you can probably afford to give up, so to speak, some of that in uh, sympathetic type activity. If you don't have much of that at rest, your body's ability to buffer stress is going to be impacted. Is there right? such a thing as someone who is parasympathetic at rest but doesn't have enough high-end um, access of heart rate? So, sure. Yeah. Yeah, you can end up also with uh, parasympathetic, like an overtraining syndrome. So I saw a client years ago, and she sent me her HRV, 
And you look at it and you're like, wow, at rest, this looks amazing. She sent me like four weeks of data. HRV is super high. Resting heart rate is relatively low. And looking at it on paper without any other context, you'd be like, man, you look great. Everything's awesome. And I write back. I said, how do you feel? She's like, I feel like shit. She's like, I can barely get off the couch. I can't train. I can't do anything. She's like, I haven't been able to work. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. Because you're grabbing that snapshot where she probably went through a massive amount of sympathetic stress. And then at some point, it's a very short transition. Your body will go from being very sympathetic, right? Uh, Ability to do work kind of gets worse. You don't feel very good. And I've seen clients go through this. They're like, oh, bro, I just drink more pre-workout and I go train harder and I'm sleeping less. They can kind of get by in it for a period of months to sometimes even years, and then literally what appears to be like a very short, like couple day period, they go wham, they become super parasympathetic, almost kind of overnight. And if you think about the body as a survival-based organism, it says, hey, you've had all this stress. We're trying to shut you down slowly over time. We're cutting your performance, but you keep doing all these other things to keep overriding it. I'm going to sort of flip the light switch and make you so parasympathetic You're not even going to make it to the gym. You're going to lie on your couch and you're going to drool on yourself, right? Um, And those people have a really hard time because they don't have any sympathetic area to go to. And you can look up in the literature. You can look up like parasympathetic overtraining. Normally, it happens with endurance athletes more so than other athletes. But it makes sense in the case of your body being survival-based that, hey, when you get to this point, we're shutting you down. You can't do anything else. If you look at Frank overtraining syndrome, it's all the, the symptoms are very, very similar. And if you're at a very high level and that's something you get, if you're an Olympic level athlete, your career is probably over. You know, to recover out of that is not months, but probably more in the case of years. Because you dug this massive, massive big hole and you need to take time to kind of fill that back in before you can even get back to baseline to start to build from there. All right, guys, need a break from all this information. I know it's information overload, but Mike Nelson is absolute wealth of information. So we started off this podcast with some heavy stuff. And to be honest, I was sitting there with my mouth open like, uh, this is really, really complicated. But toward the end, so from this point on, it's all action items, all golden nuggets. It's all giving you incredible information on how to build your greatest body and how these things uh, are influencing your ability to build your greatest body. So do not miss another minute. Head over to MI40 Nation and join me and the tribe at MI40 Nation in building your greatest body. And if you're not already a member of Hypertrophy Mastery, that's where you got to start because that is our amazing new program that we launched very recently. And we've got thousands of people in there now crushing it every month, building an incredible physique and truthfully building a lot more muscle than you ever believe is possible when you learn how to do things correctly. It's not about sets. It's not about reps. It's not even about progressive overload, although those things are obviously built in there. There's a foundational step that you're missing that nobody knows, nobody thinks about. Everybody's barking up the wrong tree. They're looking at the wrong things. What you're missing is exactly what I'm teaching in Hypertrophy Mastery, that foundational necessity to allow you to build your greatest body. Head over to hypertrophymastery.com right now. Join me, and I look forward to seeing you guys on our first coaching call. In the meantime, get out the paper, get out the pen, and get back to listening to Mike T. Nelson and myself on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. What are, the, what are some of the most um, 
obvious implications of um, heart rate variability, like improved heart rate variability, as we talked about before this, uh, I think people need to understand the idea of how this imp uh, affects their body's ability to use energy or. Yeah. So the extension that I would make is we don't have a lot of really good literature on it, but if you just go to a super high level and go, okay, if we take you at rest and we make you more sympathetic, Right? So you're going to go to the gym, you're going to do some 5x5 five five deadlifts or something like that. You want the ability, as you said, to become more sympathetic. And you want the ability to switch to be able to use more carbohydrates as a fuel source because that's the main high-power fuel to create ATP fast enough in order to fuel that exercise. On the flip side, as soon as you're done with that, you want the ability to downregulate to become more parasympathetic. And when you're more parasympathetic, in general, we see your body's ability to use fat is greater. And so there definitely is a corollary between being sympathetic and using carbs and being more parasympathetic and using fat. The tricky part, which I've tried for years, is to figure out uh, what are kind of those crossover periods, mm -hmm. right? Can I just look at someone's heart rate variability and have a good idea how well they're using those fuels? And that gets kind of messy. We don't have the data to support that yet. Um, but it would be super cool to see a study where we have an idea of what those ends of the spectrum are. Anecdotally, I can say that people who are very much on the sympathetic side, in general, have a much harder time reaching their body composition goals. Now, it could be everything from you know increased appetite drive to trying to become more thrifty with their metabolism to changes in fuel usage. It could be a bazillions of different things. But getting them to downregulate, I've noticed, works a lot uh, better. And even with some of those people now, I've been having them do a test to look at aerobic capacity, so a VO2 max test. So there's some good data. If you put them on a rower, you can do, I got this from my buddy, Dr. Kenneth J, uh, two kilometer. And what their performance on there is relates pretty high level to their uh, VO2 max. And what I've noticed lately is clients who have a hard time making body composition changes generally have a very low VO2 max, right? So the highest level they can aerobically perform. And we know from other studies that if you have a higher VO2 max, in general, your body is much better at using fat as a fuel, especially if we look at the amount of calories that you burn. Um, so I think there's some correlations between all of it. It's just very, very fuzzy. And we know that if you have a higher aerobic capacity, your heart rate variability in general is much better, right? So if I look at someone, I go, okay, your 2K time is crap. Your HRV is also crap. My guess is you're probably not using fat very well as a fuel source and your ability to downregulate to take a stressor and absorb it and then downregulate is probably going to be also impaired. Do you have some progressive strategies that you implement to um, train people to be able to push their sympathetic nervous system higher and their parasympathetic higher? Yeah. So what I want is an expansion of both ends. Yeah. So I, I just called it a human dynamic range, right? I want the ability to go as high as I can. If we just use heart rate as a marker, go as high as I can in that direction. And then I want the ability to go as low as I can in the other direction, right? So for metabolic flexibility, I want the ability to use carbohydrates to the highest degree, especially if performance is involved. But I want the ability to downregulate and to use fat to the highest degree when I need it. So the same idea. I want the highest range I can get possible. 
So initially, I'll put just the heart rate strap on him, and I'll look to see where does it go to under max exercise, right? So you've all heard the, you know, ah, oh, just take 220 minus your age, and that's your max heart rate. Yeah, it was never really designed for that. I believe the standard deviation is like plus or minus 17. And in practice, I found it's, it's just, it's not that useful. However, if I put a heart rate strap on you, and I tell you to do a max exercise, I'll just note, okay, what rate did you get to? If you got to 182, I'll say for now, until shown elsewhere, that is your max heart rate. And over time, if I can, I want their perception to see if they can beat that number. I don't think that their true over, max so really changes. So if you're doing changes. a heart rate, heart rate uh, max heart rate test, mm -hmm. what duration of test do you start to interrupt you? Oh, that's all right. Um, right now, I've been using a rower because there's some good data on it. And it's one of those weird things where you're pulling against a flywheel. So you're doing that 2K test? Is that what it so is? I'm doing like a 2K test okay. or a 500 meter. Okay. So if it's a strength and power athlete, I'll have them do a 500 meter. If I'm looking more at aerobic, I'll probably go with like a 2K. And I'll have them put the heart rate strap on. It'll sync to the computer, like if you use a Concept 2, like a PM5. And how much is that in like time? Approximately average. Yeah, so people I have now for 500 meter, the best guy I have has done it in 126. Uh, lower times are over two minutes. But you're looking at a two-minute time frame. Sure. Uh, 2K range for people I work with now, seven minutes to maybe 10 or 11 minutes. So shorter-ish. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and so I'll look to see, okay, oh, right. what Sorry, is your max? I, I didn't think it was 2,000 meters. 2,000 right? meters, Sorry, yeah. yeah. That's okay. okay. Um, so if you then repeat your 500 meter week three and your max heart rate is now 186, I don't think it really changed, but now your perception of effort, you can push a little bit more than what you did before, right? And that's the hardest part about online training is you're not standing there watching them, right? Yeah, you can try to get videos, you can try to get other things, but what is a modality of exercise where I feel comfortable from a biomechanics standpoint of pushing you pretty hard without getting injured, right? It's probably not going to be high rep Olympic lifting unless you're really, really good at that. But some lower skill like a rower, I can get away pushing you pretty hard it's a full body thing. We know we can get a VO2 max. If anyone's ever done those things, it's not fun. It's pretty hard. But the risk of injury is relatively low on that. And there's not a ton of skill. Yes, to be an elite level rower, is there skill involved? Absolutely. But most people, you can give them two minutes of instruction, and they can get on there, and they can safely perform without destroying themselves. Sure. Yeah, so part of it, I think, is what is really, truly a max effort, right? And, you know, from weightlifting stuff. Right, you could have someone go to the gym, and you're like, okay, let's just take, for the sake of argument, tricep press downs, right? Easy, simple joint exercise, not a lot of skill involved. Okay, I want you to go all out, do as many reps as you can. And you're like, meh, I'm done. You're like, there's no way that was like your max. You know, you could tell by just looking at him. Right. But without some other marker, it's, it's kind of hard to say for sure. So for more aerobic stuff, I use heart rate as kind of a max to do that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, like if we use an aura ring or like at resting or first uh, heart rate in the morning, that'll give you an idea of how low their heart rate is going on the other end. So you can kind of mark both those endpoints. Are you objectively um, including any interventions to get them lower? Or is it just a matter of like... Yeah, it's probably know. both. Because we know if we make your heart more aerobically efficient, uh, an adaptation to that will be lower resting heart rate. Um, so I know that if I am looking at aerobic capacity, I'm trying to increase, I can use like the 2k to see if your time got better. 
I can use heart rate variability to see did you become more parasympathetic over time, especially when we do a taper or a deload. So we pull away all your other training stresses and we can use that kind of that week as a marker for it because otherwise it's influenced by training and everything else also. And then resting heart rate, especially if you have like an aura ring that's looking at it constantly over the course of a night, um, that'll give you a pretty good idea of kind of where you're at. And long-term over months to even longer, I would like to see, yeah, your high heart rate may go up a little bit. I think that's more of feeling comfortable pushing probably harder than what you were used to before. And hopefully your lower heart rate will actually start to go down. So what are we doing? We're increasing that complete range of how high you can go and how low you can go on the other end of the spectrum. When you did your studying of the autonomic nervous system, did you guys do a lot of studying as to like all the other things that are um, affecting autonomic, whether it be sympathetic or parasympathetic? Uh, um, like just position and everything else. And so I've been just kind of digging into a little bit like, yeah, like eye movement, eye positions, yeah. light exposure, yeah. all those other things. I'm just curious if you, how much you looked into it and what you... Yeah, so in our studies, we actually did everything possible to eliminate all of those things. So one of the studies I did was on Monster Energy Drink. So our thought, because this is back before we could take a phone and get daily HRV, you had to come in the lab, we had to hook you up to all this equipment. The equipment we bought used for about 12 to 15 grand in order to buy the equipment. I had to go and take your data, look through it by hand, run it through Kubios, run it through a MATLAB program. Just a monster pain Damn, in the aura ass. was 15 years behind times. So. Yeah, it was a pain in the <laughs> ass to do. Right. Um, so with those studies, the only thing you could really accurately look at was some type of intervention. So you came in and we said, okay, we're going to max test you. We're going to look at body comp. We're going to do all these markers. And then we're going to take all these people and they're going to exercise at a percentage of their max. right? Because we're pooling all their data and we want to make sure that they're comparable from one person to the next because you've got different fitness levels and things of that nature. And then we're going to randomize and blind it and give you a placebo or we're going to give you an energy drink that we standardize, in our case, for caffeine amount. Because we had very small people to very large people in the study, and we wanted to make sure that the caffeine dose was per body weight, which you could argue is not exactly how people consume energy drinks. But for the sake of research, if we had a small person, a large person, we know the caffeine dose makes a big difference. And then we looked at and said, okay, what are markers of resting heart rate? What are markers of HRV? Uh, we did some stuff that was not published looking at uh, changes in vessel under uh, flow, something called FMD, so flow-mediated dilation. So you come in, we put a cuff on your forearm, we occlude for five minutes, we take an ultrasound and we image the brachial vessel in your arm, and then we hit a button and we let all that blood, bam, rush into the vessel, and we see how much that vessel dilates, because right? that's kind of a marker for cardiac health. Right, so you may have vessels in your heart, even though we're not imaging the heart directly because that's a real pain in the butt to do. But if the vessel doesn't dilate under that sheer stress, the theory is you're probably at a higher risk for having heart problems, right? Because you have endothelial dysfunction. The vessel can't dilate when it should, so you're going to impair blood flow. And one of the, there's some preliminary data saying that energy drinks mess that up, right? And at this time, you know, back many years ago, there wasn't much data on energy drinks, right? And you had camps that were like, ah, they're not that bad, to other camps of like, oh, they're the most horrible thing that's ever been invented. And what we saw, surprisingly, was uh, not too much of a change in HRV, which I was kind of surprised about. And then resting heart rate did change a little bit. 
Uh, performance was kind of enhanced, although there's a fair amount of variability. And then the FMD data we were not able to publish because the variability of the subjects who came in was massive. So I unfortunately happened to get people who were at both ends of the spectrum. So if you pool all that data, you have this super high standard deviation that basically doesn't look so good. Was it just the caffeine and the energy drink that was the um, stimulant, or was there more stuff in it? Uh, so it was Monster Energy Drink. So there's other ingredients in there. Okay. We tried to standardize for caffeine because we knew that that was one of the main stimulants. Sure. At the time, there's thoughts about you know taurine and other components. In the end, eh. It's, the dose we gave is probably fine. We didn't right. see as much sympathetic upregulation as I thought there was going to be. And the interesting part on caffeine is if you take subjects and you look at them at around 30 minutes off of caffeine and you monitor their HRV, you sometimes see them go very parasympathetic and then they go massively sympathetic depending on the dose. Hmm. And it gets even more complicated depending upon the vehicle that caffeine is delivered in. So some of the studies use coffee. And at first you go, coffee, that makes sense, right? Caffeine-containing beverage. Cool, let's look to see what's different. We assume we give you enough coffee, you're going to become more sympathetic. And at some point, that is true. But at lower doses, you have people who consume coffee and those who don't, right? So you have a tolerance effect. Sure. You have a time course effect that I look at 30 minutes, 60 minutes, or 90 minutes, right? So peak blood flow I'm sorry, peak caffeine levels are probably about 45 minutes on an empty stomach for most people. But now you've got fast metabolizers, you have slow metabolizers of caffeine. So new studies are looking at that genetic SNP to see which group you are, and then we'll segment them and see if are the effects different. So a couple of studies said that they probably are. But the other part that people forget with uh, coffee is everyone has all these other neural associations with coffee. So if I drink coffee in general, I'm usually going to do something fun or I'm going to read research. I sometimes drink it before lifting, but not, not that much. I'll tend to use more of an anhydrous caffeine if I do it before lifting because I know the exact dosage of it. So for me, coffee has all these other neuro associations that are probably a little bit more parasympathetic. If you've got someone else who says, yeah, I just slam you know, two cups of coffee every day before heavy deadlifts, wow, their neuro associations are probably more on the sympathetic side, right? right? They're using a higher dose. Everything that they're doing associated with the smell of coffee and everything else is to get them amped up to go lift. And that's why when you get into beverages and things of that nature, the research gets really messy really fast. You can kind of get around that by looking at decaf versus not decaf, standardizing caffeine and some fancy placebos and things of that nature. But it gets messy pretty fast <laughs> pretty fast can you talk about how um, heart rate variability should influence somebody's training what types of training they oh should sure be, they should be doing based on yeah where they sit. so i'll look in i'll use resting heart rate and hrv and like i said their aerobic capacity test to say hey uh, i don't know if you should really do any more sympathetic type training some more heavy weight training things of that nature because your system probably just can't recover from it as much. All right, so for example, I've taken myself and a couple other people. Uh, so one guy who was a pretty high-level CrossFit athlete, uh, his resting heart rate was about 63, which, you know, general population, you go, that's pretty good. His HRV was low, but not horrible. But then you look and go, okay, what are the guys that he's competing against that we for, know yeah. some data? They're like in the 40s, sure. mid-40s at rest. 
So he's way above the people that he wants to compete against. And so you ask him, you go, okay, what lift is very hard for you? Like all strength stuff, pretty good. Right, shorter Metcons, pretty good. Metcon starts getting over 5, 10, 15 minutes or longer, boom, like his data tanks. So if you compare like his 100-meter row, his 500-meter to even like a 20-minute, like big difference, right? His 500-meter is pretty good. His 2K is okay. 20-minute row, not so good, right? So he starts getting a more aerobic side, uh, doesn't have as much performance, so we said, okay, we're just going to have you do some low-intensity aerobic stuff. Yeah, we're going to do a little lifting, more hypertrophy work. And what we're trying to do is we really want to get more, you get into like different cardiac functions. So you want to get more blood flow into the heart and more diastolic filling. If you imagine what goes on, like so super heavy squats, right? And you think about the cardiac system, what is it doing? You have a massive amount of afterload that that heart has to squeeze against. Right, because you've got a huge amount of muscle contraction, you've got super high amounts of pressure, and you have changes in the heart thickness of the wall because the heart is working against this super high afterload. Now you compare that to something like rowing or especially biking, where you have a lot of cardiac activity, contractility, but the outside vessel pressure is not nearly as high, it's much lower. So you can get more blood flow into the heart, so you can get more diastolic, this stretching of the cardiac tissue. And when it contracts, it's pushing out blood against a much lower pressure. So the cardiac adaptations are actually quite different. Uh, rowers have some very interesting cardiac adaptations where they're probably the perfect hybrid between strength and power and hypertrophy. Um, so we wanted more of those adaptations. Do we know how much you can actually change cardiac tissue? Very debatable. Um, so we ran that for almost like 12, 16 weeks. And then he's like, oh, but my Metcon times are going down. I'm like, yeah, they probably are because we haven't done any specific lactate-based work at all. But when we added that back in, even when we tested, like, all his lifts, like, most of his lifts went up. Like, his deadlift went from 490. Uh, first test day, he got 505. So he crossed 500. So he said, just to shut it down, walk away. And he emails me, oh, I think I can do more. I'm like, cool, we'll go next week and test it. Hits, like, 520. So his lifts went up. And now when we added the Metcon stuff back in, his Metcon performance is much better than what it was before. HRV in general is kind of better. He's had some other light, outside life stress and things of that nature too. But his recovery from one session to the next is much better, right? Because if you go back and you think, okay, what is recovery based on? It's more aerobic metabolism. So if you have a higher level of aerobic metabolism, your intraset recovery is probably going to be better. Your ability to recover from one day to the next is going to be better. You probably don't have as much of a inroad into HRV in terms of even a stressor, right? You're just able to buffer a lot more of those things, including even probably lifestyle stress also. Um, so you're trying to find that, that balance between, yeah, we want more of this capacity because it's indirectly supporting this versus, but we're moving away from the thing that you're trying to get better at also. Right. So that's more the art of coaching and kind of the balancing of, okay, how far do we go back to get this adaptation? Okay. Now we'll go back and be more specific to pick up the things that you're actually going to be sort of graded on for your performance then. Right. I love what you were saying earlier about, um, balancing lifestyle interventions or yeah. sorry, lifestyle stressors with, uh, training. Can you talk to me about that? 
Yeah, so when I initially started doing HRV on people almost seven years ago now via phone app, and now we have things like the Aura Ring, the app I use is the iFleet app, I was like, okay, this is going to be great, right? So you get you know, more high-level athletes. I'm going to be able to dial in their you know, training performance and their volume exactly, and it's online, so I'll see the amount of stress. I'll see the physiologic response. And what I found with more higher-level athletes, like for when you were competing – you know, your training was probably the most stressful thing in your life. Like your rest of your lifestyle is probably not as stressful. And if you are an elite athlete, that's exactly what you want, right? But most people I found was actually inverted. Their lifestyle stressors were way higher than their training stressors. And people are like, oh, but why are you adjusting their training stressors then? Are you just basing that on like objective heart rate or what are we basing that on subjective um, perception or what? Uh, it's kind of both. Right. So what I would look at, for example, is so I talked to a guy at a seminar last week I was teaching and he's like, we're talking about HRV and he's like, oh, so I can use this to determine training volume. I'm like, you can as long as you kind of know what your baseline is. So he's like, well, my HRV has been crap. He's like, but my coach has me do a taper coming up this week. I'm like, perfect. So during your taper. If your HRV baseline is not much higher at the end of it than the start of it, I guarantee you've got some other lifestyle stressors or something happened to you that week that is a big stressor on your system. Right. Because in theory, you pulled back on what is should be for more of an elite athlete, the number one stressor, and HRV didn't change. Right, So it should have gotten a lot better. So if you run a taper where you remove the thing that you think is stressful and stuff isn't getting better... There's something happened that week or there's some other like baseline stress that's going on. And a lot of it I kind of guess at by getting context information. So on the app, it'll say, okay, rate your morning energy, rate your morning fatigue, rate your nutrition, rate your sleep on just a simple 1 to 10 scale. And if I look at that and their numbers are all kind of low, especially in one area, maybe sleep or energy or other things, and I'm pulling back on their training stressors, and those aren't changing, uh, it's telling me something else is going on at that point. Um, so then that's, that's the hard part, because HRV, at the end of the day, is telling us some really cool information, but it's only telling us the status of the autonomic nervous system. And it's kind of an oversimplification, but it's like filling a bucket and, you know, a whole bunch of things can affect the water level if you've got multiple sources going in and going out. So you're always kind of playing a little bit of a shell game, trying to figure out, you know, what is their biggest stressor, and then they're changing, and things of that nature. So that's, I think, where the, the art comes in, and making sure that you have some markers of context of what you're getting. So another guy, uh, his HRV dropped. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, wait a minute. We just started his taper. It, it, it should be going up. And it had just kept dropping for four days. So I emailed him on the fourth day. I said, hey, you know, just checking to see, you know, what, what's going on. He's like, ah, oh, I'm okay. I'm like, okay, well, here's your graph. Here's what's going on. I didn't see any major context shifts. I said, well, is there anything else going on in your life? And in his mind, he's so tuned to think that his stress is all from the gym. And he's like, well, you know, I, my wife's getting pregnant. We lost one of our coaches at our gym. And I think we're going to sell our house. And I said, when did this happen? He's like, all within the last four days. I'm like, yeah, that's a lot of stress. <laughs> he's like, oh, so that's why my HRV is changing? I'm like, yeah. And that makes perfect sense with what you have going on. 
right? So those things kind of resolve. He gets into the new place. He gets, you know, replaced with another coach. Yep, HRV starts going up again. But if I didn't have that marker, I probably wouldn't have known. Because to him, he's thinking that, oh, all stress is just in the gym. Right. And it wasn't until you kind of prompted and dug a little bit deeper. And then on reflection, he's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense that those things are stressors. Right. And some weird cases, you have unconscious stressors that you can't pick up. Like one of the weird ones I had is when I was traveling, I stayed in an Airbnb and I was just there for a conference, didn't train much, got plenty of sleep, you know, ate pretty the same nutrition, was pretty low stress. And the first day, HRV dropped and I was there for three days and it kept just tanking while I was there. I'm like, what the heck? This is so weird. And after I left, it tanked the next night. And then when I got back home, boom, it like instantly went back to normal. And I'm thinking back on it and I'm like, oh, and it sounds weird, right? But I'm like, I wonder if there's some weird mold or something there because it smelled pretty bad, like so bad that I almost like, I looked at other places to change to, but there was nothing in the area. Right. So I didn't really think about it, but now you're like, oh, maybe there was something there. I didn't really figure it out. I don't have direct testing, but I've traveled enough and stayed in enough other places that that doesn't normally happen to like lose 15 points in three days. So tell me some of those other things that interfere with, with HRV. That's, you know, the important thing for listeners to know. So we're looking at mold, as you just mentioned, how about like light and EMF and, um, you know, what else? Yeah. The, the thing is we, we don't entirely know yet. And what I've noticed is it's probably an individual basis too. And if you get even further down the rabbit hole, you're like, I wonder how much of it is even based on their perception of, ooh, this thing is a negative versus this is a positive. Totally. Right? And you know that that's going to change things. I love the smell of mold. Right? Yeah. Oh, it's great. It's wonderful. Makes me feel amazing. But you think of something like cold water exposure, right? Right. If someone goes, oh my God, someone threw me in this converted freezer and (laughs) I I hate it. Screw you. This is the worst thing ever. Right. Versus someone who's like, oh, I love the idea of hormetic stress. I'm doing a good thing for my body. Even though this physiologic thing sucks just as bad, my perception is that I'm doing my body a good thing. And you see different changes to that, right? Because the perception, so I'll explain to clients is, yep, you definitely have the physiology thing that's changing the status of your body. But you also have what is your perception of that physiologic thing. And I think that's something we don't think about a lot of times. And that might be higher. I had Dr. Rick Hansen on the the podcast, and he's the guy with the book, The Buddha's Brain. He talks about that being the first dart and second dart, right? Second dart is our perception of it. And I think it's absolutely massive. He's actually quantified it to where you know, people are getting a greater stress response from the, their perception, you know, quote unquote, second dart. Yeah. And there's some really trippy studies on this too. So one of the earliest studies took and they created a set amount of pain in the finger. And then they changed the visual input to the finger. They had them look through binoculars, either the normal way or the opposite way. So they made the finger either look bigger or the finger look smaller. And when they made the finger look bigger, they reported to the same stimulus, they reported more pain. Wow. And what's even more crazy is they had a tiny thing on there to measure the amount of local inflammation. Mm -hmm. And in the case where they reported more pain, they actually had more local inflammation. Which to me is just almost like mind-boggling. Right. Right. And you've got some of the studies you go back to the... 
uh, one where they had maids where they told one group that, hey, this amount of exercise you're doing for your body, that's a good thing. That's beneficial. It's going to help your weight loss. In another group, they didn't tell them anything. And they actually moved before they started the study the same amount. And the group where they told that, hey, this is a benefit when you're cleaning and moving around, actually lost more weight. Or the study where they took uh, the same milkshake they gave two groups and they changed the label on the milkshake. The one they said this is a very low calorie milkshake and it just kind of made it sort of blah. The other one said, oh, it's a super thick, fancy, high calorie, tons of fat milkshake. And of course, their perception of what they reported in taste was completely different. And even some of the hormonal changes were actually different. Even though it was actually, from a physiology standpoint, it was the same thing. Right. And that just feels you're like, whoa. So, yeah, how much of that I think we understand, I'm not sure. And even like EMF, like is, I'm not an expert on that by any stretch of the imagination. But when I was traveling in New York City, so I go to log on the internet. Holy crap. Like you look at how many different internet. There's two pages I had to scroll through on my computer to find it. So on one hand, I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, what impact does this have that we don't know anything about? And on the other hand, you're like, oh, what, what do you do? You walk around in a Faraday cage all day? Yes. Like, how much of that can you really <laughs> yeah. control? Right. And if you're freaking people out over something that they probably can't control, right. are, you, are you really helping them? Because you, what is the solution you're going to offer? So now you just took something that maybe was a stressor, but now you amplify to the... The psychological profile. Having a Faraday tracksuit made. Are you? Yeah. Actually. I think they make underwear now. Isn't it like underwear <laughs> they make something like that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Let you know. Yeah. Let you know how it works out. Yeah. Um, so that always makes me wonder about, even when I'm conscious of telling clients stuff, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, probably an effect, but how much do I want you worried about something you can't control? Totally. I mean, that's the definition of like skyrocketing stress. Yeah. Make someone hyper worried about something and then remove all control of that thing from them. Well, I think you also need to equip them with the strategies to, to deal with that. Sure. Right? Like exactly. I, can, I can have an awareness that something is dangerous and not panic about it. Yeah. Like, Hey, well, I know there I'm sitting beside a radiation box right now, but yeah. I have to sit here for the next hour. So let's, you know, calm down sit down. Don't make it worse. Again, right. that, that's a, a skill that people need to learn. Yeah. Um, can you talk about how you, so, so a lot of our demographic, the listeners in particular are, you know, preparing for a contest, they're preparing for sure. an event, they're preparing for something. Um, and they're aware that their HRV is low, um, but maybe they're not able or willing to change their training. Do you change the nutritional interventions? Uh, I do. So one thing I'll look at is uh, time course. So if we take the case of someone who has their lifestyle pretty under control, right? So their training is their biggest stressor. It's pretty easy to use HRV to kind of run their taper. Like let's say they're doing a powerlifting meet, right? So very performance focused. You have to perform on this set day. Uh, so one guy I worked with, his normal taper was about a week. And he was working to qualify for raw nationals. And I said, okay, let's do some stuff. So we had worked together for about six months at this point. And I said, okay, we're going to run your next taper before your meet. But I said, your taper is normally two weeks. So I said, I'm going to actually give you 14 days. So I'm going to double that. He's like, whoa, that's crazy. I'm like, well, the thing is, if you need longer to recover, let's say it's seven days and your HRV is still crap, I haven't really found anything that can rapidly accelerate that. I can find a lot of stuff that will continue to make you worse, right? So you don't sleep, you don't eat well. 
but I haven't found any sort of magical thing that could just make you super parasympathetic over the next course of a few days and boom, you're recovered, right? Smoking Other than weed time. and meditating in the Caribbean. Yeah, things like that I think <laughs> can help, but I think they're just reducing some of the stress that's already there, right? So I think those things are helpful, but they're only helpful to a certain degree, mm -hmm. right? But I said, if you're ready that Wednesday before the meet, we can easily add in a, a little bit of more set-specific work and, and prolong that sort of peak, and you're going to be fine, right? So we did that, and he was probably pretty good to go by Wednesday or Thursday. So I said, yeah, Wednesday, just go into the gym, just hit your openers, good speed, just have it be a practice, and then just you know shut it down for the next two days. Right. Uh, he did that. His HRV recovered, and it actually became a little bit sympathetic on the day of the meet. He did well, qualified for Okay, so short of, of manipulating their training, because most people don't have your skill set. They don't have the ability right. to, to objectively manipulate their training. Yeah. They just don't know how. Yeah. Like most people don't even know how to train, let alone manipulate the, yeah. the variables within that, right? So are you making special nutritional considerations? Like if my sympathetic stress is high and I know my HRV is low, should I be adjusting my calories to eat more carbohydrate to maybe blunt some of the cortisol, you know? Yeah. Anything like that? So... In short, I will, and then you're riding the line of body composition versus performance. Like, what end of the spectrum are they on that? If they're in a sport where I know we have room in terms of body composition, and they're really stressed, yeah, I'm just going to start adding more calories, and I'm probably going to add more carbohydrates, right? Because in theory, exactly what you said, what is the hormone that's probably the opposite of cortisol that we can control? Probably I would vote on insulin. Right, so I'll give them more carbohydrates. Am I purposely bumping up insulin a little bit? Yep, I'm trying to try to buffer some of that stress as much as I can in their life. You know, obviously you mentioned other interventions. Could they do some breathing stuff? Yep. Could they try to relax more? Yep. Even a simple thing like I have clients whose lifestyle is kind of crazy. Like, okay, what is number one? What do you do to relax outside of the gym? You know, like, um, like go to the gym. I'm like, no, I'm talking about. How do you handle stress? And it cannot be exercise. And vast majority of the time, they're like, uh, or I don't know. Right. I'm like, you, you need a movement strategy to handle stress, and you need a non-movement strategy to handle stress. Whether that's meditation, breathing, prayer, whatever. I don't necessarily care what it is. Yep. But if you're trying to resolve stress by adding more exercise all the time, it's probably not going to go well. So things like that. Uh, breathing is probably the biggest intervention point to acutely change HRV. Right to change you from more sympathetic to more parasympathetic. Uh, you can even get into stuff with uh, eye movements. There's some super interesting stuff with uh, even looking at trees. There's a condition called tree blindness where people can't tell the difference between trees anymore. <laughs> They're like, there's a tree, there's a tree. Like, do they look different? I don't know. They look the same. Or in Japan, they have what they call forest bathing. Oh, you mean like go walk in the woods? Yeah, basically. You know, not it's a bunch of hippies hitting themselves with twigs and stuff like that. It's go outside, and there's even more interesting stuff with fractal patterns of how the trees branch, that maybe we need to look at those things because that's what we kind of grew up looking at. Uh, distance, right? So if you're staring at your screen all day, those little muscles that control the eye, just like your hip flexors, they tend to get tight for whatever reason, and it's just because it's a lack of use. Right. If you've ever looked at your screen, all of a sudden have to look up and look out a window and it takes like half a second for that to come into focus. Yeah, you probably need to do more of that, right? Because those muscles should be really, really fast and now they're becoming slow. So things like that I've noticed. Uh, one thing I've noticed too is that people get really stressed. 
the um, saccadic or saccades, the really fine scale reflex motions of the eye become less. And that makes sense, right? So if you, if all of a sudden somebody runs into this room with a knife, we're both probably going to turn and look at that person and we're not going to try to look at anything else at all, mm -hmm. right? We're going to be very hypervigilant because that thing is by far away the biggest threat. Do we need to look and have good peripheral vision and everything else? No. But some people's baseline stress is so high that I'll watch them walk into a room and their eyes don't even move around much at all, right? Or they do the head thing where their head moves with their eyes all the time. To me, those are all tells that, yeah, they're probably much more on the sympathetic side. Really interesting. If someone's got high, sorry, high sympathetic stress, low, yeah. low heart rate variability, can we deduce that cortisol will inevitably always be high? My guess is yes, but oddly enough, I haven't seen a lot of data on that per se. Um, you would assume that it would have to be. Yeah. And that gets into, well, how high is high? Are you using a saliva measurement? What measurement are you, are you using? Things of that nature. Um, so one of the arguments I made with people who do a lot of cortisol measurements is they're like, oh, you know, you got to go in. You got to do the four-point saliva cortisol test and all this stuff. And I'm like, eh. Maybe, but one, that's kind of expensive. Two, if we assume that that test is highly accurate, I'd say that's kind of debatable. You're still only getting one representative day. But HRV, you get a measurement every morning to compare what was better and what was worse. right? So that may tell you if you're completely dysregulated, but it doesn't give you feedback when you're trying to do better. Right? So for example, like meditation, right? You tell someone, like, okay, I convinced you. You're going to meditate 10 to 15 minutes a day each morning, right? And you start and you're doing it every day. You get to like day four. You're like, man, I don't feel any different. Like, well, you may not. But if I can show you, ooh, in just five days, your HRV is starting to go up a little bit. You're like, oh, wow. So I am becoming a little bit more parasympathetic. Oh, I get a little bit of the wind. I get a little bit of that dopamine hit to the keep moving in the right direction. Like sleep is a perfect one for that. So if you can magically get people to sleep more, they have such a massive sleep debt that they're probably going to need to sleep more for a bunch of nights in a row before they really feel any different. But if I can show them their HRV data and say, hey, yeah, you've gone to bed you know, an hour earlier the past four nights. Oh, look, your HRV is actually starting to go up and you report you feel a little better in the morning. Oh, okay, that's kind of cool, right? You're kind of trying to push them in the direction by giving them a physiologic marker of their system to then kind of reinforce those small changes too. Because that's that was the biggest thing that I've noticed in the past when I didn't have HRV is I didn't have any leverage to get them to change. I was just basically going, do you feel a little bit better? And they're like, I don't know, I still feel kind of crappy. You know, and if you've been sleeping four or five hours a night, yeah, magically getting a couple more hours a night sleep, right. is it better? Yeah. Are you really going to feel that much better? Probably not, because you're still chronically sleep-deprived. Right. But if I can show you a data measurement point and say, oh, look, this is actually getting a little better, I give you kind of a little bit of that positive reinforcement, you're like, oh, okay, I guess I will kind of hang in there a little bit longer, and I'll keep doing those things because, oh, it looks like it is a beneficial thing. Do you have any, I think you mentioned you maybe not, but do you have any supplemental interventions for managing cortisol or stress? Mm, I've tried a bunch of them, and some seem to work, some don't. Like I said, with nutrition, that's probably the biggest thing, so having more calories, especially carbohydrates. Um, I've played around with some adaptogens, and 
they seem to help, but I think the dose you need is probably higher than most consume. Uh, one of the ones I do like is uh, reishi mushroom extract. Me too. There's Love a big it. debate about what part of the mushroom does it need to come from. I'm kind of more on the fruiting body type side, not yep. the quote-unquote roots part of it. Sure. Um, but I've noticed that that does seem to help, and it's not something that people feel per se. Um, but I've noticed, like, since I've been taking that, like, my immune system HRV is generally better, especially oh, yeah. with travel. Like, one of the things I look at with HRV is, does your HRV look like a sawtooth pattern, right? Do you go super high, then low, and then high, and then low? Or do you have just smaller changes? And if it looks like this big sawtooth pattern, that's telling me your body is having a very hard time adapting to some stressor. First, I'm going to look to see, does that match training? If it doesn't match training, then something else is going on. Until we can figure that out, yeah, I may say, you know, use like a reishi mushroom or some type of a, a ashwagandha or some other quote-unquote mm -hmm. sort of adaptogen immune agents. Um, those seem to help. Uh, I have noticed a good multi-nutrient blend. There's some data from uh, Julia Rutledge on that that they said, okay, if we think micro, micronutrient supplements help, what would be a good way to study this at a population level? So they went out after a natural disaster, and they literally, like in the floods in North Dakota, they had researchers out in rowboats saying, okay, you guys just had this horrible natural disaster. Okay, half of you take this, and the other half of you take this. And they didn't tell them what was what. And so it was basically a placebo and a multi-nutrient blend. Because everybody, in theory, had the exact same stressor happen to them. And what they've shown is that the multinutrient group actually reported doing better. Um, so there's some some data in that sense. So that, that makes a lot of beneficial. sense, for sure. Yeah, and it makes sense, right? Yeah, it sure. kind of lines up with what you would expect to happen. For sure. Reishi is the first thing that I recommend to everybody who says, like, hey, I'm coming down a little cold or I'm getting a little sick. And uh, I love it, man. It's an amazing. Yeah, what other ones do you use? Predominantly, I'm pretty minimal, man. So okay. I'll use uh, ashwagandha frequently. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'll use reishi. Um, you know, that's really it. Uh, magnesium is like a daily thing for yep. me. So I would agree with magnesium. Methylated B vitamins, and that's really it. Supporting uh, if, if there's high levels of stress, supporting the B vitamins. That's really it. Keep it relatively simple. Yeah, I use fish oil too, but that's kind of a given at this point. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, very interesting stuff. Um, yeah. You don't use any of the, the classic cortisol-like type supplements or anything else? Like phosphatidylserine? Yeah. I have. Um, so I was for a long time using um, phosphatidylserine and alpha-GPC before bed to seeing what, oh, interesting. To seeing what that would do. Um, so I noticed uh, improvement in my body composition, improvement in my sleep hmm. from those two things. Um, now, you know, if that's N equals one, who knows? But yeah. that was actually on the recommendation of Scott Hagerman. Do you know Scott? Yeah, 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 yeah. I used so, to live across the street from Kemi Nutra. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, he's the guy who owns the patent on yep. those, obviously. And yep. I said, hey, man, try this. You know, he's like, I'm gonna because I'm you know, a huge fan of Alpha GPC. And he's like, hey, try it before bed and see what it does. It's like N equals one. Yeah. 30 days. And body condition improved, doing nothing different. I was using very high dosages, though. What dosage, if you mind me asking? I was using uh, a gram of alpha GPC and okay. about 1,500 milligrams of phosphatidylserine. Yeah. That's what I noticed, too, with PS, is that the dosage needed to be quite high. Like, I yeah. had to get over 1,200 milligrams before I really saw an mm -hmm. effect. And it was minor, but it did seem to help. But then it you know it gets into cost-benefit ratio and things of that nature. Right. So, obviously, Scott... Uh, 
hooked me up with yeah, that. Yeah, perfect. So I was Even able, better. <laughs> I, yeah, I was able to uh, use the high dosages, and that's like, hey, man, like I'm willing to try it, you know. And I, you know, my HRV at the time was actually relatively low, and I saw a pretty good bump. So um, I was happy with it. But again, cost benefit, right? I, it's not something I recommend to most people. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing I've been playing around with, too, is you talked about sleep, is just light exposure in the morning. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I have a question now is, okay, how much daylight do you see? Not behind sunglasses, not behind a window, and not right. behind a windshield. Yeah. And it's crazy, like, how little people get, right? And you get into, well, why is that? And the eyeballs are used to regulate your circadian rhythm, right? So if you don't have that anchor of seeing sunlight, at least in the morning, which I got this from Dan Party, yep. then you're going to be all dysregulated. And so you ask them, like, okay, how do you feel in the afternoon? How do you feel at night? Like pretty much everybody reports the afternoon. I'm just really sluggish. I get home. I'm kind of tired. And right before I go to bed, I feel like I'm awake. Right. That's like the hallmark that your circadian rhythm is all just jacked yep. up. My entire family and I, every morning we'll take a walk in like usually about an hour. Yeah. Outside, get outside. If nothing else, you're getting that hour first thing in the morning. Oh right? yeah. yeah. And that's what I tell clients. They're like, Oh, but you're recommending fasted cardio. And I'm like, yeah, I've recommended fasted cardio. It's just but a walk. <laughs> I'm like, just get up, go for a walk. There's right. nothing you have to do before. There's right. nothing you have to prepare. Yeah, right. if it's in Minnesota, I get it. It's cold out. Right. But even then, there's enough sunlight to get that effect on your eyes. You know, try to look up, try to look at the tops of trees, try to get more eye movement. You're already in a fasted state. So, yeah, you're probably going to use a little bit more fat. But I found for just like all the things that I want to hit, like, even if you only get 10 or 15 minutes walking the dog, you're going to get a lot of those things with, like, not a lot of effort per se either and less things to get in the way. Like, the amount of excuses people can come up with to try to get out of it, it's a lot less, right? You don't need any special preparation. You don't need special shoes. Just get up, walk out of your door, go for a walk, come back. How do you feel about cold exposure? I know you briefly mentioned yeah. that. Is it just an a, uh, individual thing? Uh... I don't know. I'm like actually in the process of doing a bunch of stuff on that. So if we go back to HRV and metabolic flexibility, in my opinion, the next level up is uh, physiologic flexibility. So one of the presentations I'm doing in Costa Rica and some stuff after this, I've spent about two or three years looking at that saying, okay, what are all kind of the things that regulate homeostasis, right? And from our environment, we still get a lot of those things, right? So you could say, okay, how well can you go from fat use to carbohydrates and then back? Heart rate, how well can you go from sympathetic to parasympathetic, right? So autonomic nervous system regulation. A uh, big one is then temperature, right? Humans are, they like to stay at the same temperature. You look at our environment, we're almost always at the same temperature, yep. right? So then you go, okay, well, what effect does that have and how far... Can we push kind of both ends of the spectrum? Can we go with like to a sauna, right? So it's good. Uh, Rhonda Patrick's talked a lot about that. There's very good finished data to show that, you know, saunas are very helpful. Mm-hmm. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, there's some interesting data. There's a new study a couple months ago on cold water immersion and recovery of uh, mixed martial arts athletes. So there is some data showing from a muscle recovery standpoint, it's beneficial. Right. But again, you could argue that may not be the best thing to do after training, especially if you want more of a hypertrophic response. But I think as a marker of just overall health, how can you take these homeostatic things and see, right? So HDR, human dynamic range, how far can you push them? And I think the problem is that fitness is a, a culture of extremes, right? And so Wim Hof has talked about this for years, but you go online, I'm not ripping on, on Wim at all. 
Like, what are the videos you see? People in like an ice bath. It's like the coldest thing possible, right? So someone reads it and they go, ooh, cold water explosion is great. I'm going to go fill my bathtub full of ice and hang out in it. It's like, no, that's probably too far to go unless you're going to be under a very controlled environment with someone who's doing it for a very short period of time, right? You want to say, what is the next thing I need to do along that spectrum that I could probably get a lot of adaptation from with minimal effort. Maybe I'm going to walk outside and I'm just going to be a little bit colder than normal on my walk. I'm not going to give myself frostbite or maybe I'm going to turn my temperature down in my house just a little bit. Right? So on that spectrum, what's the next thing that you can do in that range? So I, I would hope to think that that's kind of the direction people would go. And yeah, at some point you're going to end up on kind of those extremes. And I think think that's going to show to be beneficial from a health standpoint as a functioning human. So one of the things I'm trying to do this spring is get, uh, I don't have to do it in the winter. I just go outside in Minnesota because it's cold. But in the spring, get a freezer, you know, convert that, use that for cold water immersion. And I actually did buy a metabolic cart. So I want to put that on at the same time if I can without short circuiting <laughs> the right. metabolic cart and be like, does fuel usage change? My gut feeling is there's some data, although it's very preliminary, I think those stressors, depending on what they are, may push you either more to the carbohydrate or more to the fat end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So again, you may be getting and you got to test when you effects. come out too, right? Like I think mm -hmm. when you're in, your cortisol is probably going up, I'm going to guess. Probably. But when you come out, what happens, right? Yeah. So again, you can look at then um, heart rate, you can look at HRV, right. and look at some of the stuff like Brian McKenzie has done, where you're using those things as an insult, but then how do you respond to it, right? So the point isn't to get to the coldest water you can get to, it's progressively go colder, but again, in more of what I view as a eustress model, right? Sure. So have it be colder, yes, but you should still probably be able to control your breathing. Have they been done any short interrupt Have they yeah. done any um, cold water exposure immediately followed by exercise? I'd be curious what happened with that. Yeah, I haven't seen anything on that yet, to be honest. Um, but that's one thing I've been just personally playing around with. I did the inverse. So I'm like, okay. Exercise then cold. Yeah, yeah, so I don't have access to a sauna. But if I do exercise, which we know is going to increase body temp. Sure. And then I go sit outside and meditate for a while. Is that better? Right, so now I'm playing with both extremes. Sure. I'm getting exercise and now I'm getting also possibly a cold response to it as just something to play around with. Right. Um, so I don't know. You know. Getting a cold exposure, assuming you're going to get a cortisol bump, whether it be from a cryo sauna or from an ice bath. Right. And, and again, objectively looking at those two things are different, the cold sauna and the, and the yes. cryo, uh, cryo. And then say, okay, I have a cortisol bump. Can I use that to fuel intense exercise and maybe potentially increase fat burning? Possibly. Curiously. And I would think that that's also, so I view that as more of a, a use stress model, right? So stress you yeah. can probably more You're easily recover it. from, yeah. right? And that's more what we would normally be exposed to, right? Right. So if you look at animals, they get a huge amount of a stressor. They, they, they shake, they run, yeah. they move, they do things like that. So I think it makes sense that, yeah, if I'm going to do something like that and then pair it with exercise, right? So... What happens, I think, in modern society is, like, so you take, uh, like, Sapolsky stuff, why zebras get ulcers, right? And that's kind of his whole argument, which I agree with. But the average person, what happens, they have decoupled movement from stress. 
So they're sitting at their desk all day. They're stressed out of their mind because their boss is yelling at them. What do they do? They maybe type a little bit faster, right? Right. They don't have much movement at all. So they have this huge amount of stress, but they don't have the outlet, especially coupled next to it. And I think that it's the decoupling of those events that just leads to all sorts of bad stuff which is why if someone is buffering some of that with higher intense exercise, even if their HRV is kind of going south a little bit, in my head, I'm always like, oh man, yeah, I don't want you to implode yourself, but I don't want to tell you to stop exercising either because you're doing the one thing that's trying to get you to be more coupled to that stressor. Right. And then how do we try to fix those a little bit better so that they're more... Uh, coupled, and then you can play around with intensity and stuff too there. What have you seen fasting doing to HRV? It's really variable. So one of the markers I do is, because I do have clients do some type of intermittent fasting where I'll say, okay, take one day and slowly push out your uh, food. So my preference in terms of all the intermittent fasting schemes is, can I get someone to go for 19 to 24 hours and be fasted? That's kind of my preference. Because what am I trying to do? Once a week? Uh, Once a week, yep. Because I want to try to drive insulin as low as I can. In healthy, lean people, that'll kind of bottom out around 18 hours. Overweight so people, What does as low as you can mean as far as numbers? Um, just on the curve. I understand, but what, yep. give me an idea of what number you're looking at. Uh, I have to go back and check, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I just remember the shape of the, the curve on it. I can send you the one study that uh, did that and compared lean versus overweight people, and they did a 48-hour fast in terms of what were the changes in it. Uh, but yeah, I don't remember the numbers offhand, to be honest. Uh, but the thought is, eh, if I can do that, I can push them to use more fat with that. And then the two things I have them do, uh, report your first meal after your fast. If you go crazy at the buffet line for two hours, you probably pushed your fast too too hard. It should be the same meal that you had before. It shouldn't really be that different. And then I'll look at their HRV score the next day and the day after. And in a perfect world, your HRV may drop a little bit, but I don't want it to be bad for a couple days. And if it keeps continuing to be bad for a couple days, then I'm going to shorten their fast. Right? Because for a lot of people, if you think about other than sleeping, you know, they probably haven't done a lot longer-term fasting really at all. So when I first started, I tried doing a 24-hour fast, and it was just, it was just a debacle. And I couldn't figure out. I'm like, why is this so hard? I'm like, oh, this fasting stuff I knew was horrible. And I'd be like, well, it's the same thing if, you know, someone comes over to my gym and has never deadlifted before. Ah, let's just put 405 on the bar and I'll just yell at you to try harder. You know, unless you're like Andy Bolton or Benedict Magnuson or someone. <laughs> right. It's not going anywhere, right? right. But, oh, but I could just put 95 or 135 or 225 or wherever your capacity is. I can put it just right where you can do it. Right. All right. So once Most I did that with fasting, four hours without eating, right? They're going. Oh they're yeah, start exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. if I could just move it out far enough, yeah. where I want the positive adaptation, but I don't want the cost of that to be exceedingly high. And what happens, right? The body just adapts, just like it does anything else. Just like you would do with loading. Just like right. you would do with anything else. Do that again the following week. And, you know, in six to eight weeks, most people can do a, a 19 to 24-hour fast, and it's not that bad. Their HRV drops a little bit but doesn't tank, and within a day, they're, you know, pretty good to go again. Right. This is going to sound redundant, but um, do you think that 
HRV is correlated with body composition. And I don't think it sounds redundant because yeah. you probably answered it, but I think for you just specifically stating that will be very useful for the listener yeah. to get it through the head. Uh, I would love to see a study on that. My gut feeling is that it probably is correlative. To what degree, I'm not sure. Because what I've just noticed after looking at you know hundreds, probably thousands of HRV measurements at this point, having body comp on people, most people who have more parasympathetic tone, heart rate variability is generally better. Their body composition is almost always better. And when I went back and looked at it again, I was talking about aerobic uh, capacity. I've noticed that their aerobic capacity or VO2 max was almost higher too. Like the people who had a really hard time changing their body comp or it was off, HRV was usually quite a bit lower. Resting heart rate was higher. Uh, VO2 max was usually quite a bit lower also. How much, now this may be an inverse relationship or chicken to the egg scenario, but how much are estrogen and, and testosterone playing into um, the HRV? Yeah, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I would hypothesize that higher testosterone in theory should allow you to buffer more stress. The bugger with that, as you know, is that it's a really nonlinear response, right? So if we look at just testosterone and hypertrophy, yeah, if you're hypogonadal, yep, you're off the left end of the spectrum wherever we cut that off, yeah, you're probably going to have some issues. If you're in the middle range, right, and I think it was uh, Bazin who did a study where they chemically castrated people, and I think they gave them testosterone and anthate and tried to put them back in different ranges. And if you're in, like, the middle range, it didn't seem to matter a whole lot. If you're off on the super physiologic range, then, yeah, of course, it's going to help a lot. Uh, but if you go from 500 to 850, eh, Every guy wants to be at 850, obviously, but the data we have now would say that there's probably not as big of a difference there as what we think. If you go from 50 to 300, that's probably like being in another universe. <laughs> you know, even though you're kind of low, you went from being almost non-existent to the lower end of the spectrum. That's probably a big difference. What was he putting um, physiological, uh, super physiological numbers to? Did, did he? They mentioned, do you recall? Uh, I think they only went to, I think the top end was only 1,200, I think. So not like super crazy high. And the reality is we're probably not going to see any super physiologic, super high numbers ever. Sure. And that's moral. a different universe. And yeah. Yeah. Again, I'd love to see more data on that, but trying to get that one through your IRB is going to be tricky. <laughs> put you to 5,000. Um, what else do you think listeners need to know about an autonomic nervous system that we haven't talked about? I think the biggest thing is have an actual measurement of it. And the thing I get worried about is that everybody and their brother in the device industry is doing HRV now. And a lot of the HRV that's out there, in my opinion, is not very accurate at all. So watches that, and I have a Garmin watch that I love, that are on the wrist. We're both that, wearing a Garmin. Yeah, and, and I love it. At the same time. It's great. Yeah. But do I trust the HRV measurement off it? No, I'm not convinced that through a light measurement on the wrist, what's called PPG, mm -hmm. yes, you can get an HRV number. I'm not convinced that it's very accurate at all because to get a really good number, you need to be within milliseconds. Uh, however, like on the Aura Ring, uh, because you're, and you have one too, 
right next to the vessel. I love the interview you did with them. You can get very, very accurate data because it's right next to the vessel. You can map the whole waveform. You can do all that stuff. They've shown me their algorithm. It's published in the journal Sleep, so they actually have published data on it. Um, so from a standpoint, uh, the accuracy is really good. The bugger about the Aura Ring, which they would admit too, is that because it's now getting data the whole time that we sleep, we don't really have a lot of other data to compare that to because that technology is so new. There's just not a lot of research done to say, well, what exactly does that mean? And now that's also going to be influenced by the length of sleep. So if you've got four hours of sleep or you've got nine hours of sleep, you have a different data collection period of which you're grabbing that data. And I've noticed that in general, when it's shorter, your HRV is going to be lower. And then you're like, well, is that because the data collection was shorter? Right. Maybe. But when you get less sleep, you're obviously going to be more stressed also. Um, I still do the athlete number that I do first thing in the morning. They have data showing that that is accurate. And most of the work I do has been just sort of inadvertently kind of calibrated to that. And there is more data on that in terms of training performance and output and things of that nature. So we're kind of in the middle of the wild, wild west where just because the data we got is accurate, I think it's useful. It definitely gets you in a ballpark. Should people get it? Yeah. But it's almost like everyone and their brother wants to add HRV to something because it's like super sexy now. Right. And like the data I've seen on other people's devices is it's, it's not even close. And some companies won't even tell you, like I won't name their names, but they won't say how they even do the measurement. It's like, okay, well, has it been reviewed anywhere in the literature? Like what method do you even do to grab it, right? Do you do time domain? Do you do frequency domain, nonlinear? How do you get it? All those kind of details that unless you've worked in HRV, you wouldn't even know to ask, right? Because right? that's its own, own little universe in and of itself. And people are like, oh, but it gave me a number. I'm like, okay. And then beyond that, so let's say we have a number. Let's say the number is accurate. HRV in terms of predictor of performance is actually pretty crappy on a super acute level. There's some data in endurance athletes that it might be okay. But I get emails from people all the time that are like, ah, I did this athlete measurement. It was red today and it was shit. And I went to the gym and I said PRs. Ah! Sure. I'm like, well, yeah, that's that's one day's performance. Right. But I can redline my car and drive faster too. Can't do it over a few I days. I can't do that every single day. Right. Um, so a new study that came out looked at the conclusion. If you just read the conclusion, they'd say that HRV was not predictive of absolute performance. I believe it was an eight-week study. And that's correct. But when you read the literature, they had two groups. One that did change their training based on HRV. The other group who did the HRV measurement but did not change their training based on it. And yeah, the end outcome was they both reached the same uh, strength gains. However, the HRV group got there, I believe, 17 days earlier. I'd have to check the exact time frame. But they got the same result in way less time. So if you read the conclusion, you'd be like, oh, it's not that predictive. You're like, oh, but it aggregate over time. It'd be almost like do the same training program but now you got 17 extra days you can get stronger or better with. Right. It's like, dude, I'll take that all the time. Right. Right. Because you got the same endpoint, you just got it earlier. So that's like a that's a win. So I think HRV looking at is the what I tell clients is the overall cost of all the stress upon your autonomic nervous system. 
And yeah, the autonomic nervous system is in charge of a lot of stuff in the body, but it's not the be-all, one-end-all predictor of performance. And so far, we haven't found a single predictor of performance. We probably never will find a single performance. Right. But to keep an eye on how far are you pushing, what is kind of the recovery, at least, of your autonomic nervous system, I found that for that, it's super useful. Because like we talked about lifestyle stress and other stressors, most people have a very low level of awareness of that. Like you ask them about it, they're like, yeah, I could probably change, I could probably improve. But until they actually see the data in front of them, one, they don't realize how much of a factor that's playing. And two, like we talked about the sleep interventions, when you do some type of intervention, you can see, am I making a difference within a relatively shorter order? And that allows you to hopefully stay with more positive habit change and not really try to get super far off course all the time. Have you done any digging into the correlation of um, capnography and the autonomic nervous system? Oh, yeah. You were you texting me about that. Yeah. I have not. But when I talked about the physiologic flexibility, mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm super interested in is how far can you push that also? Right. So what is how much of a difference does oxygen levels make? How much of a difference does CO2 levels make? So I bought a Moxie device, if you're familiar with that. So muscle oxygenation. It's It's just like a finger. Yeah. So you have the finger sensors, right? They look at light and they look at basically the color of the red blood cell to determine how much oxygen is loaded on it. So Mm -hmm. pulse ox. Yep. So they did the same thing but they tuned it more for the venous uh, blood and at a muscle level. So you, so I have three sensors. So if we do a rower test or a squat test, we'll stick one on both quads and then maybe like a non-working muscle, maybe like the shoulder. So imagine if you're doing a rower, you know, the shoulder's not doing a lot compared to your quads. And we can look in real time and see a proxy of what is the blood flow how much of it is saturated, right? So how much sort of oxygen are we getting? And then also how much of that is desaturated? How much can the muscle actually strip off under high intense exercise? And what you find is most of the textbooks would say that, yeah, desaturation is all like super high, don't worry about it. You start testing people, like when I was initially tested two years ago in Austin at Trained App Evolve from Aaron Davis, my desaturation under max exercise was only like 35%. Right, so you think about performance, you're like, yeah, we can't drive it to zero, but I'm still probably leaving a fair amount of performance on the table. Mm-hmm. And then you go, well, it's hypothetical. Well, what drives that off? Right. Well, it's a passive diffusion. So what is the biggest driver of that? It's actually local CO2. Right. If I can push up local CO2, I can then basically kick off more oxygen into the muscle. And then you're like, okay, well. Oh, crap. How do I do that? Well, why am I not doing it? Right. And I know you had Patrick McEwen on here also. Yep. You get into some of his stuff where he's like, well, we're probably not breathing correctly. And paradoxically, maybe we don't have enough CO2 that we need to drive that into what we actually need to do. So that sent me down the path of like nasal breathing and breath holds and trying to measure CO2 and mm-hmm. all that and kind of stuff. Maybe even blood flow restriction. I wonder how that would be impl- implicated in. Uh... Carbon dioxide levels. Yeah, I don't know. So all that to say that it appears that maybe one of the benefits of nasal breathing is purposely restricting breathing to possibly push up levels of CO2, right? So you get that more kind of need to breathe. Mm -hmm. 
And then hopefully over time, that'll reset some of the central regulators of that to allow you to get to a higher level of CO2, to drive more oxygen off into the muscle, to desaturate better. And obviously that's gonna be the same loop that's gonna change breathing rate and things of that nature. So I'd love to get a direct measure and see if different types of breathing uh, help with that in addition to Certainly exercise. Does. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually looking at getting Oh, a, sweet. What did yeah. you find? Oh, well, I don't know anything about it, but I had a guest on recently, Dr. Michael Hamilton. You may want to listen oh, to Oh, okay, podcast. nice. She, she came into the into the studio and did a capnography assessment on me, resident breath rate, like how many ah. breaths per minute. And I'm going to pick one of those up for the gym because, sweet. yeah, to put everyone on that, would you know, I think is very valuable. One, measuring progress. Two, how many, how many breaths per minute. Um, I think would be really, really useful. And again, I'm not an expert on yet, yeah. but it's certainly something that is... How much did you been asking how much the device was? Were you able to find one? Yeah, so between 3500 and five grand. Yeah, that's what I found too. Depending what you well, I don't have one yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not cheap for sure. But uh, I think as far as value, um, it, you know, for anybody walking into the facility and we want objective measures of progress, well, you know, how many objective measures of progress can you can you bring into a training facility? You may yeah. be short of getting a metal ball cart, um, I think that would be a reasonable uh, addition to a training facility. Yeah. So how I got at it is, so I bought a Moxie that allows me to look at a muscle level specific on that. And then I did actually just buy a metabolic cart. Oh, how so, much is that? Uh, I bought the Phone unit, mm-hmm. P-N-O-E. It was about 6000 Um, And it's portable. So we'll see how that plays out. I haven't got it yet. But in my head, I'm like, okay, so what what do I really want to know, right? So I got into Moxie because I want to know at the muscle level what's actually going on. If I put someone on a rower, I'm going to get all the power output. I can get heart rate. I can get a quantification of the output of what they're doing. And if I use a metabolic heart, now I can get VO2 max. I can get RER. I can get fuel usage. So I can get a systemic viewpoint. I can get that related to performance. And then I can get at a local muscle level what's actually going on. Because one of the things that Moxie has found, too, is that uh, looking at blood flow, you would assume when you start exercising that blood flow is kind of the same everywhere. And what you'll notice sometimes under as they get to high intense exercise, the muscle that's a non-working muscle, the blood flow to that will all of a sudden change. And you're like, well, wait a minute. that well, It's not working. Does what it give the hell is going on? Is it a real-time measure? Or is it yeah. Just, yeah, that's very good. And you go, oh, maybe the working muscle needs more blood flow. And your brain goes, well, this thing's not doing a lot. I'm going to basically steal. It's kind of like when you train legs and your upper body it. looks like it's never been, never worked right. out. Right. <laughs> and so their, their theory then is, well, maybe that's a cardiac limitation. Maybe I just can't get enough blood flow to the muscle to get the level of performance that I need. Maybe that's an indicator that their aerobic performance needs to go up. They need more cardiac-specific work. So I'm interested that if that's true, do you take those people and train them? Hmm. Does their VO2 max go up and change? And does that actually change the performance metric that you're looking at? So in the future, yeah, I would love to measure baseline CO2 levels because maybe, who knows, maybe it's as simple as here's your baseline CO2. Here's where we know the range you should or should not be in wow, your CO2 level is kind of screwy. You're actually paradoxically low, right? So maybe you need this breath-holding procedure. Maybe you need more desaturation work, nasal breathing, aerobic-based building to actually get a higher level of CO2. Now, maybe we can use uh, Aura Ring to look at, I've been trying to look at respiration rate. 
So in theory, if I do these interventions, my respiration rate should actually start to go down. And what I've noticed on some athletes is that even pretty high-level athletes, some of the respiration rates, in my opinion, are higher than what I would expect. So I had him do like the bolt test from Patrick McEwen stuff mm -hmm. and trying to correlate, you know, what is the correlation between maybe a bolt test and the respiration rate? I don't know, but to have a direct measure on something like that, I think would be super useful. Amazing. This has been so useful. And so fun stuff to play with. Dude, I'm going to go back and listen <laughs> about seven times. Is there anywhere that people can find more um, first about your information on the autonomic nervous system sure. and then second on your courses and where you teach? Yeah, so the best place is probably just my website. Uh, it's just MikeTNelson.com. Uh, uh, so some of the places I teach for reflexive performance reset. I'm a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute for Functional Neurology. So we have a whole program on human performance that I do with Dr. Kenneth J and some other guys through there. So cardiovascular strength, I do the nutrition, and there's a neurology portion uh, of that. And then the other certification I have is flexdiet.com is more for trainers and advanced people. I took eight interventions and did an overall picture on metabolic flexibility with flexible dieting. And then within each one of those eight interventions, like a one hour lecture on it, and then made it practical with some uh, action tips. So that usually goes on sale about every quarter. Uh, information, you can get that at just flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And then when they go to the website, the MikeTNelson.com, There'll be a little thing at the top of the page where they can get on the newsletter. And that's probably right now, like 90% of my information goes out just to the, the newsletter for right now. So people can get on there for free and we give them some cool stuff. Man, that's amazing. You're such a wealth of information, man. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me on here. We got to record this at the, the Arnold again here in Ohio. And yeah, we got man. to walk around a little bit beforehand. So, yeah, it was awesome. Get to go and enjoy the cold now. Yeah, for sure. Thanks very much, Thank Mike. you. Appreciate, Appreciate it, buddy. man. Yeah, awesome. All right, boys and girls, that's a wrap. I know you've heard enough of me talking. You've probably heard enough of Mike talking. Your brain probably hurts. But head over to iTunes right now and subscribe and leave us a review because there's more incredible guests coming at you every single week for the rest of 2019 because I love doing this stuff. I love the idea of upgrading the health and consciousness of humanity, helping you build your greatest body and live your greatest life. And don't forget, head over right now, hypertrophymastery.com. Me, you, building muscle for the next six months. Look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.